Welcome to Two-Way Street. I'm Bill Nygut. Today we're going to explore the life and the music of Savannah native Johnny Mercer, one of the 20th century's most prolific and beloved songwriters. I'm old-fashioned I love the moonlight I love the old-fashioned thing Mercer wrote the lyrics to that song to a tune by Jerome Kern back in 1942, and that's him singing the song, too. I wanted to start with it because I think as we listen to his songs during the show today, they're going to transport us back to a more old-fashioned time in the music business, a time when songs were more frankly sentimental, where emotions were often expressed without irony, and when there was nothing at all cynical about rhyming moon and June, even if it did seem like a songwriter's lazy way out of composing a lyric. Between 1929 and 1976, Mercer wrote the lyrics, and in some cases the music too, to some 1,400 songs. Although he left Savannah in the South when he was still a young man, as you'll hear, the South remained a looming presence in his songwriting. Joining me to talk about Johnny Mercer is Kevin Fleming. He's the popular music and culture archivist at Georgia State University. Georgia State is the repository for Johnny Mercer's papers, as well as carrying a vast collection of other materials related to Mercer's life and career. I'm really glad you could be here today, Kevin. Thank you. Um, And we should say, one of the reasons I wanted to do this show uh, this week is that coming up on June 25th, we mark the anniversary of Johnny Mercer's death. He died on June 25th, uh, 1976, and this seemed like a good time to look back on the incredible body of work that he had. Just as a starting point, um, why is Johnny Mercer so important in the canon of American music of the 20th century? Well, I think based on the sheer volume of work that he did over his career makes him very significant. He's one of these songwriters and performers that a lot of people know his songs, but they don't know that it's Johnny Mercer. Um, A lot of times when I'm working with students, um, I'll drop some names of songs and they have heard him, but they didn't realize that was him. And also he was a little bit different in coming from the South where there weren't many significant songwriters from the Tin Pan Alley um, time period that came from the South. And so that made him a little more unique than the typical songwriters from um, New York City. So let's talk about his uh, growing up. He was born in Savannah. His father was a an attorney and a very successful um, developer, real estate developer back in in the uh, the day. Johnny Mercer was born in 1909, and he comes out of a long tradition of Southern aristocracy, I think it's safe to say. His grandfather was an officer in the Civil War. He can date back to Mercer's in the Revolutionary War. So he comes out of a distinguished family, yes? Yes, that is correct. Um, (laughs) Yeah. and in his early days, I want to go to, um, if, if you don't mind, I want to read. You were very nice. You were nice enough to send me. You have um, an, the manuscript of an unpublished memoir at the archives. That's correct. And it's available online for all to read. And here's what he says about life in uh, the early days in Savannah. Um, he talks about uh, going from his house in Savannah to the family's summer home in the country. 
He says, the roads were still unpaved, made of crushed oyster shell, and as they wound their way under the trees covered with Spanish moss, it was a sweet, indolent background for a boy to grow up in. But then he goes on and he talks about the help. He had an interesting relationship with the African-Americans who worked for the family and who he saw around him, didn't he? Yes, he did. And I think that influenced his lyric writing quite a bit. Um, being exposed to what is it, the Goli and Geechee culture there, that was a big influence on him because the children that he played with at that time period, he picked up on some of their dialect and things like that, and that definitely came across later on in his lyric writing. He wrote um, in, in the memoir... Having all those colored people around meant having a lot of music also. And not only did we get the traditional lullabies and work songs, but we'd get to hear their church services upon an occasional Sunday. As a matter of fact, I can hardly ever remember there not being music in town or out. And then he goes on and says, My Aunt Hattie swears I hummed back at her at the tender age of six months she always used to take me to see the minstrel shows, which were so popular then in the South as well as in uh, the bigger cities. So it's no wonder that um, his upbringing in the South, even though he left it, uh, had an enormous influence on who he was as a songwriter. Yes, and he used to, in Savannah also used to go down, you know, and mourn his teen years to West Broad Street, which was the African-American community there and visit the music shops there and listen to, at the time, what they were called race records. And so he got a big exposure to uh, different types of music so that way as well. he was listening to, like, people like, like Ma Rainey, yes. I imagine? Yes. He was probably also listening to Louis Armstrong, who he later worked with. Yes, he did. And uh, he developed quite a good friendship with Louis Armstrong over the years. But, yeah, that was uh, some early big influences. So he, at age 28, Eight, I, no, younger than that. He's like 19 years old. Correct. His father's business has uh, gone into a deep, deep slump. And he's, he's supposed to be taking over the business uh, for the family. He was like the fourth in the line of, of kids in the family. Yes. And, um, you know, prior to that, he'd went off to a boarding school, uh, Woodbury Forest up in Virginia. And... You know, he wasn't as, um, I guess, studious as some of his <laughs> siblings on there because I had read that it was typical for the family to go on to Princeton University, and that was somewhat of a tradition, And but he decided not to, so he came back and worked for his father um, for a short time period. But really what he wanted to do was try his hand at theater. So he, um, in I believe it was 1928, um, went up to New York City to try to... Um, make it in theater. Let, let's listen to Johnny Mercer talk about uh, leaving the South and why he did it. This is, um, again, from your archives, uh, an interview he did with a radio personality named Willis Conover, who asked him about his relationship to the South and why he left. Well, I left the South because economically, I could never have made a living in the South. I was the fourth son in a small business that couldn't have absorbed me, and I had to go to make to find something to do. And I left, and I, and I came to the right place because I wound up in New York and Hollywood where my little talent was uh, saleable. But I never forgot the South. I never forgot the friends I made there, the things I learned there, the way of life that I like. It's fast going and almost all gone. 
He goes to New York and he wins some a competition that's sponsored by the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. Talk about how important that orchestra was in those days. Yes, it was very significant. They were you know, the top of the pop genre at the time period. And it was um, the Pontiac Youth of America singing competition. And uh, I kind of compare it to American Idol nowadays. And so um, Mercer went on to win that competition in, in 1932. And the prize for it was to perform on the Paul Whiteman radio show. So he won it as a singer, not because he wrote a song for it. Correct. Go ahead. So um, that was basically the launching point for him with... Um, he had already had a song published prior to that, but it wasn't a hit. But that really opened doors for him. And uh, even even later on, he came back to perform with Paul Whiteman um, in his regular orchestra. What was that song that he'd written that wasn't uh, published? You um, it was very first one that was published. It was called Out of Breath and Scared to Death of You. And it was um, <laughs> part of a stage production that he wanted to be in the stage production as an actor. Um, it was called the Gar- Garrick Gades, and this was um, 1930. And so the producer said, no, we already have enough male actors in it. He said, but we're, we need some songs. And so Mercer had been playing around with it for since his teenage years, and he presented this one song to him, and it was his first um, published material. Out of breath, scared to death of you. It takes all the strength that I can call to my command to hold your hand. I would speak at length about the love that should be made, but I'm afraid. To get a chance to work with Paul Whiteman was a huge break for a young man uh, like Mercer. Yes. I mean, um, then Paul Whiteman referred to himself as the king of jazz yeah. at that time period. Well, he was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I think any performer at that time period would have jumped at that opportunity um, for it. So it was a it was a big deal for Mercer. And then it opened doors later on, like working with Jack Teagarden, who was part of that orchestra as well. And so I found a song that uh, that Mercer wrote while he was uh, with uh, Whiteman. And uh, I thought it'd be fun to listen to a little bit of it now because it tells us about this transition he'd made from coming from uh, Savannah, now working in a world in New York City. He's going to end up in Hollywood. And so he's a little reluctant about his Southern heritage and writes a song about it. Part my southern accent, part my southern draw. It may sound funny, um, but honey, I love y'all. If you don't like my accent, if you don't like my draw, then just don't listen, let's start kissing, bet you'll fall. Come on now. Pardon my southern accent. <laughs> Great. That's, it says it all in the lyrics with it. <laughs> So when did he go to Hollywood? It was in um, 1935. He'd actually got um, a contract with RKO to write and act in motion pictures. And um, so in 1935, he moved to Hollywood and served as an actor, songwriter, and vocalist in a couple films. One was called Old Man Rhythm, and the other one was called To Beat the Band. And he has very small roles in the films, but it's, um, you know, obviously they're musicals. And so he's um, part of the ensemble singing for it. And then, of course, he wrote the music for um, songs in the uh, productions. Pardon me, but 
So um, he gets out there and, um, and almost immediately has some success. Why don't we do this? Why don't we get a break out of the way? Um, and uh, we'll come back and continue our conversation. We're talking today about the life and career of Johnny Mercer. Our, my guest is uh, Kevin Fleming. He is the popular music and culture archivist at Georgia State University where all of Johnny Mercer's papers are held, and uh, so is a collection of other materials related to his life and his career. And before we go to break, uh, Kevin, all of this material, you said, is available to the public. Yes, it is. Um, It's housed in the Special Collections and Archives, which is in the the main GSU library, and it's open to the general public, so anybody um, can come and visit and take a look through the material. We also have an exhibit within the library that documents Mercer's um, life and career. And so, yes, it's um, available to anyone that would like to take a look at it. All right, we'll have more about Johnny Mercer with Kevin Fleming after a break. Welcome back to Two-Way Street. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, We're talking about the life and career of Savannah native Johnny Mercer, one of the most important uh, lyricists and songwriters, in some cases, of popular music in the 20th century. My guest is Kevin Fleming. He's the popular music and culture archivist at Georgia State University. Um, Kevin, I thought a great way to start this segment of the show would be to play our listeners a clip from the old Steve Allen TV show. Steve Allen was a great star on NBC for a long, long time. He himself was a composer, a jazz artist, and he had Johnny Mercer on one night, and they did something that gives us a chance to hear the range of Johnny Mercer's songs and also tells us what a swingin', swingin' uh, uh, cat Johnny Mercer really was. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to present again Mr. Johnny Mercer. So we're going to start this segment by listening to a little bit of that musical set on the Steve Allen Show. Well, Uncle John, you know, I've been looking forward to your being with us tonight because, uh, well, quite frankly, I need some advice about my songwriting. Well, what's the problem, Steve? My songwriting. (laughs) So here we go. Every time I sing a song by another composer, you have to sing one of yours based on the same subject, all right? Okay. We'll start with a weather song by Gershwin. All right. (laughs) A foggy day in London town. Well, it had me low. Had me down. I got it. I'm gonna love you like nobody's loved you. Come rain or come shine. High as a mountain and deep as a 
Steve Allen and uh, Johnny Mercer. Uh, Kevin, you have some great stories about songs that Johnny Mercer wrote. And if we can't, he didn't write the music to a, a great many songs. But one of the songs he did write was Something's Gotta Give. When an irresistible force such as you meets an old immovable object like me you can bet just as sure as you live something's gotta give something's gotta give something's gotta give tell us about that song and what was his style of writing when he did write the music so i always found it really unique that someone could spend their entire career as a songwriter and the one thing that's really unique about mercer he couldn't read or write standard music notation so there's quite a few um, songs in the archive where Mercer is credited as the lyricist and the composer for the song. So on a lot of the draft music and draft lyrics, we'll have to just where he's written down the names of the notes. So it'll be A, B, D, F, etc. And then if one of those notes is supposed to be up an octave or down an octave, he'll write a little arrow next to it. And so that's how he'd write out the melody for a song. And also, I had heard that um, he couldn't play piano either, but he would sit there with one finger and work out the melody that way. So I'm sure, you know, he'd come up with the core of the song, and then somebody would have to assist him in writing down the actual music notation to, to get it published and, and whatnot. You would think he worked, like, with over 230 different composers over his careers, and I always thought some of that, you think, would have um, seeped in to, to, him, to where he'd be able to pick it up. Um, but that never happened. But I also look at it, well, it was working for him. So, um, you know, why, why try not? to fix it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if it worked. So, you know, he did this for Something's Gotta Give, uh, the song Dream. Um, another, you know, a full um, movie musical, Daddy's, uh, Long, Daddy's Long Legs. Um, Daddy he, Long Legs, he wrote all, Yes. Uh, he wrote all the um, music for that. And then stage production, Top Banana um, with Phil Silvers. 
He did all the music and lyrics for that one as well. So there's, I think people, you know, he's identified as a lyricist primarily, but he did write quite a bit of music as well. Another story that I think is wonderful is the story about this song, I Want to Be Around. I want to be around to pick up the pieces when somebody breaks your heart. Some somebody twice as smart as I somebody who will swear to be true as you used to do with me now I know I want to be around from the Tony Bennett recording I'm sure it's been recorded by many other artists and that song has another unique um, origin to it. There was um, a lady who worked in a department store in Ohio. Her name was Sadie Vimmerstadt. And she wrote, she ripped out a little piece of a daily calendar and wrote on it um, her idea for a song, which was, I want to be around to pick up the pieces of your broken heart. And she said it was intended for Frank Sinatra because he had just split up with his wife at the time. And so she wrote that down on a little calendar, put it in an envelope that just said Johnny Mercer, songwriter, New York City. Amazingly, this letter actually got to Johnny Mercer because the postman recognized his name and gave it to the ASCAP office in New York City there, and then in turn that got to Mercer. And so he ended up corresponding with her, and he ended up splitting the royalties with the song with the Sadie Vimmerstadt, and they were actually nominated for a Grammy Award for it, and she attended the Grammys with Mercer. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, they didn't win for that song, but um, it kind of sh- goes to show that um, his willingness to work with anyone on it, you know, it was a good idea for a song, so he took and, and ran with it. And we actually have in the collection the original calendar and the um the letter the envelope and everything that she'd sent to him and we actually have a demo recording of mercer recording the song first before tony bennett did it uh, and it was his copy that he sent to sadie to see how she liked it tell me about blues in the night um when you mentioned earlier where um he said his um nanny said that he would make uh sing a song or hum with that he would also say that I, the trains going by, he was always fascinated by the sounds of the whistles and things like that. And I had heard that he would mimic those as well. And so, um, you know, Blues in the Night has... A wooey, a wooey. Exactly. Train sounds <laughs> in it. And so, and on a side note, Mercer was scared to death of flying. So he always took the train. And, um, so, and that's where he wrote a lot of his songs, traveling between Hollywood and coming back to Georgia Um, you know, spent a long time on the trains and he would write, um, we have quite a few draft lyrics written on the letterhead of notepads that were provided by different uh, train companies. So um, let's listen to uh, Johnny Mercer himself talk a little bit about the process of writing uh, a song or two. Um, First, uh, he's going to talk about writing what I think is one of his most beautiful songs, Autumn Leaves. Autumn Leaves is a translation from the French uh, and I think I wrote that pretty fast. Mickey Goldson, who published it, said, you got to write this lyric. And I said, I can't write it. I, I, 
promised you I'd write it, but I'm, I'm going to New York this afternoon. And I'd like to have it before you go. So I said, well, I'll tell you. You drive me down to the train, and I'll see if I can write it on the way. And uh, that's what happened. He drove me from, it takes about a half hour to get from Hollywood to Los Angeles Railroad Station. And during that time, I wrote the lyric for Autumn Leaves. Well, it's, it's a great tune, you know, good title. Nothing wrong with the lyric, either. It's all right. It fit the tune. I don't think it's very original. The falling leaves drift by my window. The falling leaves of red and gold. I see your lips, the summer kisses, the sunburned hands I used to hold. And then that chorus, since you went away, the days grow long, and soon I'll hear old winter song. But I miss you most of all, my darling, when autumn leaves start to fall. The beauty of that lyric is not only is it a song about longing for a lost love, it's a song about growing old. It's got a double meaning. Yes. It's very powerful in that way. Yeah, definitely. And he did write that, you know, somewhat later in his career. And it also, you know, paints a very vivid picture of what I listen to it. It's um, you know, definitely nature. And a lot of his lyrics were based around... Um, nature and landscape and scenery and things like that. And I think that ties back to a Southern upbringing as well. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's a good time to talk about one of his probably greatest compositions and one that really harkens back to his Southern upbringing, Skylark. Yes. Can, can you tell us anything about Skylark? Well, um, he did write quite a few songs, you know, as I mentioned about um, nature, but within nature, um, bird songs, basically. Um, you know, there was a song called Bob White and then, of course, Skylark. And he wrote that with um, Hoagie Carmichael. And I think he just had a real knack for um, description of what was going on in nature around him on that. And I had heard that they had struggled with the, the title for the song for a while to come up with. And he was always aware of, you know, reading different things around him, either magazines or newspapers and whatnot, just looking for words or phrases that jumped out at him. And I'd read that with Skylark, he had saw the word Skylark on a billboard somewhere, and it just stuck with him, and he felt it fit well with the song, and so that's how it ended up. It's a beautiful song. Let's listen to just a little bit of it now. anything to say to me? Won't you tell me where my love can be? Is there a meadow in the mist where someone's waiting to be kissed? Wow. <laughs> um, all right. I want to change pace on Johnny Mercer. First, I'm going to play you a song that I love dearly, uh, but I love it the way in which Mercer wrote it, but I also love the particular version we're going to listen to because it tells me that despite the fact that he's somewhere back there in the past in the in this kind of reverential uh, place in the American songbook, uh, this was a very hip 
composer, uh, 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 composer and lyricist. He wrote a song called I'm an Old Cowhand, which he wrote when he was out in Hollywood, right? And, and it is a spoof on uh, what he saw around him when he'd be on the movie lots and see Westerns being filmed and all that, right? Yes, because it was around 1936. And, of course, at that time in country music, um, the cowboy songs and cowboy films were very popular at that time. But... Uh, Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks, uh, a band very much of uh, the last part of the 20th century, recorded that song. It's sung by uh, one of their vocalists, uh, Naomi Eisenberg, and this is how she interpreted I'm an Old Cowhand. I'm an old cowhand from the Rio Grande, but my legs ain't bold. Cheeks ain't I love that version of the song. Yeah, that's really good. I love the uh, steel guitar in the background on that. And also on a side note, that's another song that Mercer wrote the music for as well. Oh, he did? Yes. It's a great song. Yeah, yeah. All right. We got a lot more I want to talk with you about in terms of Johnny Mercer, including uh, the fact that he was asked by the Georgia legislature to write the what, would, what they hoped would become the official song of Georgia. We'll talk about what happened with that song and what beat him out, uh, but let's do this. Uh, this is a two-way street. We got to get another break in when we come back. More with Kevin Fleming on Johnny Mercer. If you're just joining us, my guest is Kevin Fleming of Georgia State University uh, Archives. He oversees, among many other uh, aspects of his the uh, uh, cultural collection over there, the Johnny Mercer papers and all of the materials related to uh, the great Savannah songwriter's uh, life and career. Um, Kevin, it's <laughs> I don't know the year. But at a certain point, quite a while back, uh, the Georgia legislature asked uh, Johnny Mercer if he'd like to compose an official song uh, for the state of Georgia, right? Yes, he did. And he ended up writing a song called Georgia, Georgia. And we actually have the original draft music and draft lyrics in the collection for it. But unfortunately, the song was rejected. And then, of course, um, Georgia on My Mind became 
the state song. Yeah. <laughs> which was written by Hoagy Carmichael. <laughs> Here are some of the lyrics. Georgia, Georgia, where do I start? Words can sing, but not like the heart. There's no land in all this earth like the land of my birth. Georgia, Georgia, careless yield, watermelons ripe in the field, pine trees full of red birdsong, rivers rolling along. And one of the criticisms of that lyric is that it isn't very heartfelt. No, but again, going back to when we talked earlier about kind of painting a picture of the, your surroundings and things like that, I think that was probably his biggest strength. And I that's what I hear in that song is, you know, you get an image of what Georgia is like. I want to go back to his films. We talked about the fact that he wrote lyrics and in some cases music for many motion pictures. I think it was close to 100 motion pictures. He won a number of Academy Awards. Yes. He ended up, he was nominated 18 times for Best Song, and um, he ended up winning four times out of that. And the only other songwriter to be nominated more than him was Sammy Kahn. Do you know what what he won for? Yes. Um on the actress in Topeka and Santa Fe was his first one. Which was the the picture was... was Harvey Girls Harvey with Girls. Uh, Judy Garland. Judy Garland sang yes. it. Yes, and it was uh, 1946, I believe. And then, or the film was 1945, and the award was 1946. Um, and then later with Hoagy Carmichael in 1951, um, In the Cool, Cool, Cool of the Evening. In the Cool, Cool, Cool of the Evening. That's the one. I know those songs. Yeah. Everybody does. I'm old. <laughs> they just don't know Mercer did them. That's part of it. Um, and then once he started working with the Henry Mancini, um, of course, Moon River was um, nominated and won for award. And then the following year, uh, Days in Wine and Roses was another one that he won. Which for. was the picture with uh, Jack Lemmon. Uh, about Lee Remick. Lee Remick, Remick. Um, playing uh, alcoholics. Very tough picture. And it's interesting to think about such a somber theme and how you might come up with the appropriate uh, way to capture that in lyric and, and music. Let's listen to just a little bit of Days of Wine and Roses. Hello. that he wrote that in about 10 minutes standing in his hallway that and it's only two sentences the, the entire lyric and so i don't know if that's of interest where you yeah. know sometimes as you brought up earlier where he wrote um it could take months to write lyrics for a song and other times it came out in a matter of minutes so let's i want to talk about his movie writing a little more with a little more specificity and let's talk about two pictures he wrote a song called laura which is based on the music that was used in the motion picture, Laura, right? Right, yes. But his song, Laura, didn't appear in the movie. And let's listen to how he describes what happened. 
So they said, you'll have to call it Laura because that's what they're asking for. Well, it didn't matter too much to me except that the mood of the song mattered. And the mood of the song is the face in the misty light, the voice on the, the, the eyes on the train, the face on the train, footsteps. You know, that to me is, that's what the music says. It could have been any name. It didn't have to be Laura. It was the name of the, of the movie. It's lucky her name wasn't Maud. Yeah, it was. Well, we couldn't. We have to say Maud. That would have been tough. The movie had been released. There was an instrumental theme song, and people clamored to go when they went to the record store to say, "We want that song, Laura." What happened? Yeah, they actually the um, movie production company were getting letters saying that we want um, a release of a song. You know, they loved the melody for the the theme music for the film, and so the composer of that, David Ratskin, they approached him and said, all right, we need some lyrics for this. Who would you like to do this? And first person that popped in his mind was Johnny Mercer. So they approached him, and the story goes that Mercer wrote the lyrics without even seeing the film. And when you do go back and listen to the lyrics um, and see the film, it matches perfectly. The, the story that is so, so wonderful is the story of his writing, and you mentioned it a few minutes ago, with Henry Mancini, uh, Moon River. Moon River was written for uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, which was a movie based on a story uh, written by Truman Capote. Uh, Audrey Hepburn played the lead role. She plays Holly Golightly. Tell us a story about Moon River. Well, um, originally the song wasn't even called Moon River. It was um, called Holly. And there's a few in his um, autobiography, there's a few lines from it. And my personal opinion, I'm glad they changed it because (laughs) I don't think it would have worked very well. Well, I'm glad you said that because we, in fact, uh, can listen to Johnny Mercer talking about uh, writing a song called Holly and sharing with us a little bit of what it sounded like. Well, Moon River, Henry and I wrote for uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and the first lyric I had was called Holly, uh, because I thought they wanted to, it was kind of fashionable in those days to get a, a song that was tied into the picture. Once you heard the song, you'd immediately think of the picture. So I wrote a lyric called Holly, and it went, I'm Holly like I want to be, like Holly on a tree back home. Just plain holly with no dolly, no mama, no papa, wherever I roam. And I told him, I said, this song I think the producers might like because it's right out of the picture. Maybe Capote will like it. I don't know. That's a terrible lyric. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So it's very good that they changed it. So we have a wonderful recording that I want to share with you of the demo for Moon River. Henry Mancini sits down at the piano, Johnny Mercer standing there, Mancini plays, and uh, Mercer sings the demo to what will become probably one of his biggest hits. Yes, is what he was most well known for over the years. And this demo, um, Henry Mancini's son came across it several years ago um, on a little um, lacquer disc and had it digitized, and then, of course, um, we were able to get a copy of it for our collection as well. And um, and again, going back to, you know, the type of lyrics Mercer wrote, you know, Moon River 
is based on the river that ran behind their summer home um, outside of Savannah in Vernon View. And um, actually, after the song came very popular, they ended up renaming, which was at the time called the Back River. Um, they renamed it the Moon River. Georgia legislature finally found a way to uh, pay tribute to him after rejecting his uh, uh, submission for the official song of Georgia. Right. Let's listen to Henry Mancini at the piano and uh, Johnny Mercer singing the demo of Moon River. Moon River, wider than a mile. I'm crossing you in style someday. performing style it it isn't the most it isn't a perfect voice it isn't a trained voice but listening to johnny mercer sing primarily his own songs is a lovely thing isn't it yes i mean he had a um his voice as you were saying wasn't as polished as others but he had been singing his whole life and depending on the songs that he selected you know either his own songs or songs by other composers um if he selected the right song that fit his voice it really worked on it. And he did quite a few recordings um, with Capitol Records on there in his, um, you know, in the 40s and 50s. Um, you mentioned it very early on, uh, but uh, he was the co-founder of Capitol Records, which became uh, one of the most important record labels on the West Coast while he was uh, running it. Yes. Um, you know, at the time period, um, there was basically three large record labels, DECA, RCA, Victor, and Columbia, and they were all based on the East Coast. And a lot of the songwriters had moved out to Hollywood to work in musical films. And so he kind of felt a need for it there that there was all these performers and songwriters on the West Coast, but there wasn't a record label in the area. So he got together with um, a former songwriter named Buddy De Silva, who was um, now working for Paramount Pictures. And then also a gentleman named uh, Glenn Wallace. And so the three of them got together and they ended up establishing Capitol Records. And it started in 1942. And um, some of the early releases on it were of Mercer performing his own songs. But then other artists um, like Margaret Whiting was another early um, vocalist as well. And we actually have her papers in the collection as well just because of her connection to Mercer. Nat King Cole, you mentioned, recorded on Capitol Records. They gave him his breakthrough, essentially, as a recording artist. Um, so Mercer was a 
talented business executive as well as being a songwriter and performer. Yes. And it, the he knew everybody in the industry. So the performers were comfortable around him because he was one of them versus, uh, you know, a businessman, basically. So initially he served as um, the A&R person, you know, selecting the artist and the songs that they would sing. And then he served as the president of the company. And he um, stayed with it until 1955 when it was sold to EMI. So um, Mercer, uh, once he left Savannah as a 19-year-old boy, essentially, uh, went to New York, then ended up in Hollywood, he, he did come back south. He had a house that he uh, stayed at uh, near Savannah. Right. And it, it wasn't the same um, areas as... Um, Vernon View, it was close to that, but it wasn't the same house as his childhood summer home, but it was in the same area. But it never really was his home again. I think, and you might correct me if you think I'm wrong, when people would have asked Johnny Mercer where he was from, he might have said, well, I grew up in Savannah, but I'm from Los Angeles. Yes, because he spent the majority of his life there in Los Angeles. You know, of course, he had his wife and two children, and they spent their um, entire lives in uh, the Los Angeles area. He died on June 25th in uh, 1976. Given where popular music is today, Kevin, um, how will his music live on? Well, being an archivist isn't just collecting materials and housing them in a library. The important part of it is making sure those materials are being used. So a big part of my job is outreach as well. So we do things like the biannual concert, um, at Georgia State University. I also do an education program with the School of Music to where I have um, graduate students come in and create curriculums that based off of materials in the collection, and then they go out and teach it in, in the local schools. And so that's been quite successful so far. Um, and then also there's a Johnny Mercer Foundation that was established by his wife um, in 1981. And so I work quite closely with them. And they do all sorts of, um, like a songwriter's workshop at Northwestern's un University, um, um, another program called Accentuate the Positive, which is a guide to lyric writing for children. And we do that in um, local schools here in Atlanta, plus in Los Angeles and in New York City and Miami as well. So I work very closely with them of um, getting the word out and keeping his music alive. So his songs will live on. Yes, yes. Even his music has changed dramatically since the way he was writing in his day. Right. And that, I mean, that's one of our goals with his collection is trying to keep his name out there and his music alive. Kevin Fleming, I really appreciate your taking time to talk to us about Johnny Mercer today. Thanks, Kevin. Well, thank you for having me. Kevin Fleming is the popular music and culture archivist at Georgia State University. He oversees a vast collection of Mercer papers and other materials. Johnny Mercer died at age 66 on June 25, 1976. He'd gone through a long period of dizzy spells, which were eventually diagnosed as being caused by a brain tumor. An operation to remove the tumor left him in a semi-conscious state for months. The biggest irony was that a man who had written so many beautiful, funny, clever lyrics was no longer able to speak. Although he died in Los Angeles, Mercer's body was returned to Savannah, 
and he was buried at St. Bonaventure Cemetery. The inscription on his headstone quotes one of his most popular hits. Under his name and the dates of birth and death, it simply reads, And the Angels Sing. He wrote that song essentially on a dare. He was a guest one night on band leader Benny Goodman's Camel Caravan radio program. A member of the band played him a little piece of a melody that Mercer immediately liked. Mercer describes what happened next. Pretty, you know. So uh, I said, gee, that's a pretty tune. Benny said, would you like to write it? And I said, I sure would. I was on the program with him. So the producers said, well, we'll announce that you're going to write it. You'll have it next by next week. So I said, okay. So I went home and I... And uh, Thursday came around, or whenever it was, and I said, I can't, I can't make it by tomorrow. I'll try. He said, well, put it off a week. I'll just tell them I'll have it next week. So they said, okay. And I did. I got it by the next week. Kept trying. I had a title call, and it all came true, and another title. And I wrote them all up in a rough form, and I showed them to a few of my friends and asked them which, which lyric they, they liked best. And they said, the angel sings the best lyric. So I finished that in time for the program, and we did it on the on the radio, and Martha made a record that was an instant hit. We meet, and the angels sing. The angels sing the sweetest song I ever heard. As we leave you today, I want to let you know that in just a couple of weeks, Two Way Street will be celebrating four years on the air. During that time, we've talked with well over a hundred guests who work in a variety of creative fields. Authors, of course, singers and songwriters, actors and directors, but we've also presented long-form conversations with scientists doing interesting research, chefs, and on a couple of shows, public health doctors who have done crucial work on diseases like Ebola and smallpox. For me, Two Way Street is first and foremost about storytelling, and we look for guests whose stories we think you'll find compelling. Starting with next week's Two Way Street, we're going to revisit a number of shows that featured some of our favorite guests during our first four years on the air. So you want to do this? Let us begin on our Two Way Street. Shady Grove, my little love, Shady Grove, my darling, Shady Grove, my little love, I'm going back to Harlan. Oh, I love, thank you for doing that. You like that? Oh, <laughs> yeah, God, I'm of so glad. I like that. I like that, too. <laughs> Don't like you, Bella? <laughs> Bill, you're an Atlanta institution. No, no, you're an Atlanta I wouldn't say no to you. <laughs> bringing in my Next week, Tom Johnson. The Macon native, who was a close aide to President Lyndon Johnson and who went on to become president of CNN when the company was becoming a global success. I get this call uh, from Ted Turner who says, would you really become president of CNN? That was his quote. Would you really become president of CNN? That's it for this week's show. Our producer is Olivia Rheingold. Olivia edited this week's show. Our engineer is Tyler Morris. I'm Bill Nygut. See you again for another two-way street next week.